0: Privilege of turning to God's Word tonight. We're turning to the Psalms tonight. This is the last of our Sunday evenings in the Psalms. We've been sort of picking and choosing our way through the Psalter for the last number of months, and we'll do that for the last time tonight. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 82. One of our goals as we've worked through the psalms over the last five months or so is to attempt to to pick psalms of different genres. We've looked at psalms of praise and adoration. We've looked at psalms of lament. We've looked at psalms where our desperate need of God uh, has been expressed. We've looked at psalms of ascent where the Israelites were gathering to worship God we've looked at creation psalms so we've looked at a number of different genres in the Psalter and tonight Psalm 82 is is a psalm of justice calling out for God's justice to be done on behalf of the the weak and the oppressed and also a call of condemnation on those who fail to bring justice so if you would uh, read with me the eight verses of Psalm 82 God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness, all the foundations of the earth, are shaken. I said, You are God's, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your Word, your Word which gives us your will. so many areas of life. We pray tonight as we come into your presence that you would teach us more about who you are and give us more of your grace and willingness to live as you would have us to live. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Psalm 82 is a a short psalm and as as I chose this psalm, and began to look into it, I was very eager to read and get a better understanding of the psalm because there are a number of things on a first read that I had no idea what was going on and what it was talking about. Right up front, it's probably obvious that if we're going to understand this psalm, we have to understand who these gods are that this psalm is talking about. It starts off talking about God in the midst of the gods, and wait a second, I thought God was the only God, and then he's calling other gods, something gods so what's going on here and so although I don't normally take a long time in a sermon to explain some background I thought I would give you a little window into some of the the reading and and opinions and and thoughts on on Psalm 82 here particularly since I cracked open three commentators to look at this uh, passage and found out that historically there are three interpretations of who these gods are and wouldn't you know it of course each commentator chose a different view and each one referred to a different one as the least likely. So I thought, well, I could just choose a fourth commentator to break the tie. Uh, but in, in the end, thinking through the issue actually was quite a blessing and it forced me to consider carefully. So I just want to explain really briefly what the options are and what I think this psalm uh, is saying. So the three possibilities briefly are, one, the gods could refer to the pagan gods of the surrounding nations. And this, on this view, the God of Israel is sort of calling an assembly of all of the pagan gods worshipped by other nations and condemning them for their lack of justice. Now, I personally think this is the least likely view. If you think about how the Old Testament refers to pagan gods, it almost always refers to them as nothing more than blocks of stone that can't speak or hear or do anything. And so to come here and talk about, well, let me get all the pagan gods together and have a council doesn't seem to fit. Uh, and even even if we move past that, the idea of him having this sort of um, judgment of of their their justice seems to me the most unlikely context for the psalm. but that was uh, the the most one view that really came in just the last probably fifty to seventy years as people were studying more Canaanite mythology and it seems to arise more from that. The second option is that the gods refer to. I guess we would say uh, demons or principalities and powers. Uh, Paul talks about how Jesus uh, has conquered the principalities and powers. And the Old Testament actually does use the word for gods. Elohim is the word for gods. And it does use that on a couple of occasions to refer to demons or other powers, uh, Isaiah twenty-four twenty-one talks about the Lord punishing the kings of the earth and the Elohim of heaven, the gods of heaven or the hosts of heaven. So, um, the word does is used that way. And I think if you think of it in that sense of God sort of gathering this divine council, and there are other principalities and powers gathering with Him, you might think about Job chapter one and the and the the scenario in Job chapter one where it says. God gathered the assembly and, and those going to and fro, including Satan, come to that gathering uh, before him. This, this idea kind of, kind of fits that context. So that's a second option, is that God is calling the sons of the Most High, these, these principalities and powers before him, to condemn their wickedness and injustice. Then the third view is that the gods are actually human judges. And these would be the human judges of Israel. And we may think, well, why in the world would human judges of Israel be called gods, uh, Elohim? But actually, in Exodus 21 and Exodus 22, multiple times, the human judges in Israel were referred to as gods, as Elohim. Um, probably, I think I think it's four times in those two chapters, the word gods is used to refer to human judges. And this... Uh, It seems to be, as Deuteronomy 1 kind of spells this out, that the judges were there to deliver God's judgment. And so the word Elohim was applied to them in that office. And so this would picture God as the great judge summoning Israel's judges and condemning them for showing partiality and injustice. So there's the three options commentators all over the place. But in the end, I found the most weighty argument to come from Jesus himself because Jesus actually references this psalm and he references the phrase, you are gods. Uh, and so in John 10, to 36, the Pharisees come to Jesus and accuse him of blasphemy. And they accuse him of blasphemy because he calls himself the son of God. And Jesus' response to their accusation of blasphemy is quoting Psalm 82. And Jesus says there in John 10, If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, what about the one whom the Father has set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why do you then accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? Now if you break that down, it seems to me very clear that jesus is referring to the gods here as human judges as the one to whom god's word came he says if he called them gods to whom god's word came it seems the demons are not people to whom god's word came they were the human representatives in israel to whom god's word came and jesus logic is very clear if the human judges of israel were called gods because god's word came to them And the Bible says you are God, sons of the most high. How can I not call myself the son of God when the Father has sent me into the world as the very word of God? It's uh, if, If they got the word of God as humans and were called sons of the most high, how can I not call myself the son of God? And so to me, Jesus' word very... I would say, I think, puts heavy weight on the third interpretation that the gods here are human judges in Israel referred to in this way because Exodus refers to them in this way. And so the picture is God assembling in the courtroom all of the other judges and issuing judgment. Against the judges of Israel for their their wickedness and, and injustice. So I wanted to give you just a little bit of a insight into the options and to to how I'm taking it. I think as we work through the psalm, the psalm makes uh, I think this also makes the most sense of the context as we see God summoning the the human judges and condemning them for their failure to uphold God's justice. So that's I think the best understanding here. That's how I'll be pursuing this text. Um, and as we go through here then, let's work through the psalm with this understanding. And, and I want to notice three things. First, I want to notice who God is. Second, what God loves. And third, what God will do. Three things to notice from this psalm. First, who God is. This psalm is a trial. It's a courtroom scene. And it plays exactly like a courtroom scene that you might you might have been a part of before. Some of you have, have likely been in a courtroom Maybe others of you only know what a courtroom scene looks like from watching Law & Order or some other crime drama. But most of us have some idea of what goes on in a courtroom. And the scene here, it's not the one where you sort of hear arguments from witnesses and and things like that. This is the reconvening of the court as the judge takes the stand to issue his decision and to render his judgment. That's the scene here. As God reconvenes the council, he convenes the council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment to give his indictment to his opinion. He cites first the faults and failures of Israel's judges, and then he issues the consequences that they will die like mere men and face judgment like all other men. But I think the power of this imagery is that the divine assembly here is entirely made up of judges. Everyone here, the gods in the council, every one of them is a judge. And yet amidst all these judges, only one holds power and authority, and that is the Lord God. The Lord God who is the judge over all judges. The Lord God who sits in judgment over human judges. For he alone is the one who has ultimate power and authority. If you've ever been in a courtroom, you can probably visualize that courtroom and realize that there are a ton of elements that communicate authority. You have have the the raised bench that the judge sits at. You have the black robe. You have the gavel that calls to authority. You have the bailiff who's calling all rise as the judge comes in. Usually, usually you have even the decor in the courtroom, whether it's something like a Supreme Court building where you'll have impressive carvings in there or even just the, the wood paneling and the decor usually uh, represents the, the, the nature of, of what's going on. And then, and then, of course, you have the very fact that the judge's word decides the issue. So authority is represented here in the courtroom in so many different ways. As I thought about this, I, I thought back to my freshman year in college. I had the chance while well, in Washington D.C. to sit in the Supreme Court building during oral arguments for a, for a court case, which is a unique opportunity. And and I remember. Uh, the the pronouncement all rise as nine judges in their black robes these judges who use faces you had seen whose names you knew filed into the bench and and then asked questions and were demolishing the arguments of the lawyers who were trying to to uh to make their arguments and that that vision holds a sort of emotional power in my mind of the authority of what was happening here well here's What is happening in the psalm? The same vision should hold our minds in this psalm as human judges who are normally viewed as authority, normally viewed as the ones with power to render decisions are now sitting under the judgment of God who comes in to hold judgment over them. There's absolutely zero confusion in this psalm of who has authority, who is the one with the rightful power, who is the one who is the just judge alone who renders judgment over all others. It's a clear picture of power and authority and of the absolute sovereignty of our God. I think this picture in this psalm of who God is calls us to worship and to give glory to the one who is over all, even anyone who would hold some small earthly power over us. This is who God is, the absolute, the sovereign, the judge. Now, of course, this level of authority, if someone has this Amount of power and authority. This can be a frightening thing. The imbalance of power. Where one holds authority. And the ability to direct. And the other is weak and vulnerable. And at the mercy of that person. This is a, this is a dangerous situation. And everything about this. Depends on who's in authority. You, know, you, you guys were likely here. Many of you in March. When Bob Fu spoke at our missions conference. And spoke of of his conviction in China before the authorities of China. There was an imbalance of power there, and it was a frightful situation because of who held the authority, someone who was unjust and could not be trusted. Or maybe there's plenty of of examples in our own country. Remember an example in Oklahoma of a a woman who was falsifying evidence and, and leading to convictions, even to death row, in order to advance a career. If you have a situation like that where injustice is done with power and authority, it's a frightful situation that leads to oppression and wrong. But the situation of this level of power and authority and sovereignty can also offer the ultimate safety and security. Again, it all depends on who holds the authority. And so this leads us to the second thing that this psalm shows us. The second thing this psalm talks about is what God loves. What is this God who holds power and authority like? What is his heart? What is his passion? And the psalm in verses 2 through 5 particularly demonstrate that God is a God who cares for justice, who loves the weak and the oppressed. He is a God who uses his power to protect the weak, and he uses his perfection to do what is right. In verse 2, he asks the human judges this indicting question. How long will you judge unjustly? How long will you show partiality to the wicked? Then he issues four statements of what a just judge ought to do. A just judge ought to give justice to the weak and fatherless. He ought to maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. He ought to rescue the weak and the needy. And he ought to deliver them from the hand of the wicked. What a great summary. Both of biblical justice, but also the heart of God. The heart of God for righteousness that the judgments that come be right to give a person their proper due and also the heart of God to protect and care for the weak and the vulnerable. This is biblical justice. I like how uh, Tim Keller boiling down biblical justice defined it this way. He said, biblical justice is giving people their due, whether that is punishment or acquittal, whether that is opposing someone or protecting someone whether that is caring for a person who is weak and needy or standing up to a person who has power and authority. It is giving a person their proper due. And justice, justice involves judging righteously without partiality in matters of the law. And it involves protecting the weak and the vulnerable from oppression and wrong. And if you think about the role of a judge and think particularly about Israel's judges here, remember the psalmist here speaking to judges in Israel, the role of of the judges in Israel was particularly important. They were to judge righteously because they were judging and issuing judgments on God's behalf. I found it interesting as I I looked back at Deuteronomy chapter 1. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, Moses is is dividing out the task of judging Israel, and he calls men to judge. And he says to them in verse 17, you shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. They stand there delivering judgments that are God's. And so the call to to justice and righteousness is a call to reflect and stand in God's stead. God's rule is carried out in holiness, justice, and righteousness. And so how much more, how much ought the human judges as his representatives do the same? And judges are also called here to protect the weak and the vulnerable. Why? Because God cares for the weak and the vulnerable. This is his heart. Again, they're his representatives who show his heart for the afflicted and the needy. Again, as I thought back through the Old Testament, I thought how again and again there are calls to Israel to care for the stranger and the, the widow and the orphan. I thought about Deuteronomy 26. In Deuteronomy 26, Moses appeals to Israel's own history as slaves wandering in a foreign land, oppressed and destitute. He says, remember Egypt? You were oppressed You were destitute, you were needy, you were strangers. And it was God's protecting, rescuing, caring, delivering work on your behalf that brought you out. So how much more now should you also care for, protect, rescue, deliver the stranger and the needy among you? I don't want to underestimate how important this justice is to God. I don't know about you, but I I feel like I think a lot about God's love a lot about maybe grace, forgiveness, mercy. But I don't find myself meditating on the greatness or the importance of God's justice very often. And yet the Old Testament over and over again, all throughout the Old Testament, are calls to justice. You might think of Isaiah one seventeen, where God says, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. And then he goes on to indict Israel's judges for not doing that. Maybe you think of Micah 6, 8, where it says, What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Maybe you think of the famous verse in Amos five twenty four, Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. We could go on and on of the Old Testament emphasis on justice, doing justice because God cares for it. But it's not just an Old Testament appeal. Maybe you think of Jesus. Jesus in Luke 11 condemns the Pharisees for tithing down to mint and cumin, but neglecting justice and the love of their God. Or Maybe you think of James chapter 1, true and undefiled religion is to care for widows and orphans among you. Why is justice such a big deal? As I thought about justice, it seems to me that justice is the combination of power and righteousness. It's the combination of authority and love. Justice is the practical result of all God's attributes. When you combine his power and his authority with his love and his goodness and his righteousness, how does that play out? In justice. Injustice. And to fail to do justice is to fail to image who God is. In fact, Psalm 10, if we want to go to another Psalm, says God Himself hears the afflicted and does justice. That is what He does. And therefore, he calls us to do the same. See, God God is not just sitting in heaven, waiting for us to believe in him. God is actively at work right now, building a kingdom for himself. And part of building his kingdom since the fall is righting all wrongs. As we move towards God's culminating coming again, God is at work bringing about the righting of all wrongs. Bringing about the justice of everything that went wrong. Bringing about the shalom, if you want to use back to the the Hebrew word, where everything is right again. Where everything is restored to the way God intends. God's justice is his acting to bring this about. And so ultimately, our pursuit of justice is a question of whether we care about what God cares about. Are we passionate about what our God is passionate about? To protect the vulnerable and seek justice is an issue of whether we will image the heart of God. As I reflected on on my own life, I thought about the fact that unless someone I know and love is being deeply hurt, I think I tend to be fairly passive. I think I'm willing to maybe empathize with someone who has been hurt. I might be willing to go to efforts to comfort someone who has been hurt. But I don't know how much I am willing to stand up and act to do justice or to defend them. Or to protect them. Empathizing them is good. But am I willing to seek justice and defend the vulnerable? And there are many reasons why I might not want to do this. If you think about it, doing justice and helping and protecting the weak is often messy. It's not easy. It takes time. Things go wrong. We, We try and hit roadblocks. It's often unprofitable. Often working for justice takes initiative and in sacrifice. It's often costly with little or no earthly reward. In fact, often the opposite. In fact, many times if we're going to defend the oppressed, we have to, we have to cross and go against those who have power. And so it comes with getting people who do have money or power or status angry with us. If I'm honest, I think often also, I would say that it's better for a person to be wronged and just keep the peace and, and cover things over than stir up the pot and protest. And I think, of course, there's a role for this. If you think of Dr. Rogers' sermon a couple of weeks ago about turning the other cheek, there's certainly a role for for turning the other cheek, for taking personal insults, overlooking them. But this is not always true. When it comes to issues of justice and the afflicted and the oppressed, To to see someone who has been seriously wounded and oppressed and afflicted and done wrong, and to just say, just overlook it, just forgive it, is not to care about justice in the way God cares about justice. Some of you have likely read some of the testimonies from Rachel Den Hollander in recent months. Rachel Den Hollander was a Christian woman who was an early victim of Larry Nassar in the Michigan State abuse case. And she was the first to speak out against Nassar in the fall of 2016. She was also one of the final ones to be given the opportunity to give testimony of the impact of what was done to her. And two things stood out to me about her testimony. First, while many people talked about her forgiveness of Nassar, and she she very clearly forgave him, fewer have focused on her very strong call for God's justice to be meted out to him as well. She argues that to be faithful to God and his gospel— For his gospel to have any meaning and power, we need to care both about justice against sin and wrong and about forgiveness. Also, this is the second thing that stood out to me about her testimony. She says that the Christian church is often one of the worst places in the world for victims of abuse to find help. She says in the church there is bad theology, little understanding, and a desire to smooth things over and keep the peace rather than to do what is right. In fact, she directly accuses the church of caring more about keeping their face and keeping things looking clean and pretty than for justice in protecting the oppressed. She acknowledges, of course, that many times the church does not respond well because it just doesn't know what to do. But there are other times, she says, when it's darker. And she suggests that churches have a greater desire to preserve their good image than to seek justice, and to defend the oppressed. As I thought about God's heart for justice and for the weak and vulnerable. I realized that I, I think I need to grow in this area. And as I thought practically what are some ways I, what are some things I can be doing now. To grow in my passion for justice. And I thought there's two things that I should be doing. First I thought I need to, I need to intentionally cultivate my love and appreciation. For the important role of the weak and the vulnerable in God's kingdom. Two weeks ago, I went to a fundraising event for one of our supported missionaries, Cheryl Erb, who works with PCA's disability ministry. And there, there was a video that the director of Engaging Disability, the PCA's ministry, made a wonderful appeal to 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12 says this, says, On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weak are indispensable. God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one, one another. And the director of the ministry argued that failing to love and care for people with disabilities, in her case, because it's costly, difficult, or uncomfortable, is a failure to understand the body of Christ and the heart of God for those who are weak. I think the same argument can go tonight. If or when I lack the costly, uncomfortable care and protection for the afflicted or the oppressed or vulnerable, it's likely a result of my failure to love them well or to consider how important the weak and the oppressed are in God's kingdom. In fact, according to 1 Corinthians 12, they are indispensable and have been greater, given greater honor in the kingdom of God because they lack it in this world. And so, my question for myself is Am I loving myself and my comfort or my routine most, or am I loving what matters to God? And as I do so, I pray that I will be cultivating a love for the weak and the oppressed, the afflicted and the vulnerable. And if I do, then I think I will have a greater concern for their protection and for their justice. Second, I want to better understand the balance between justice and forgiveness in the gospel. The Lord loves justice, and justice is at the heart of the gospel. Take out justice, and you no longer have the truth of the gospel. Because the gospel is not just a story of God up in heaven looking down and saying, that's okay, I'll just forgive you all. I'll just sweep it under the rug and forgive everything. No, the gospel is a story of God pouring out his cup of wrath against sin, but pouring it out against Christ instead of us, meaning that we deserved Justice and the cups of God's wrath. And it's only because of Christ that we escape that. In Rachel Denhaller's testimony, she calls for Nassar to experience the soul crushing weight of guilt for what he has done. Because only if he experiences the soul crushing weight of guilt can he understand what true repentance will look like and can he understand what the forgiveness of God looks like in the gospel. What a beautiful way of saying it. Meditating on the importance of God's justice will increase my understanding of the glory of my Savior and of his grace and throw me into deeper joy in what he's done. I was interested, as I noted, as I was looking up Old Testament references on justice, Micah 6 and Amos 5, these two great calls to justice, both of them are preceded by the statement that God is rejecting the sacrifices and the worship of his people because they are not doing justice. I thought, what a clear call to us as Christians to make sure that we're not comfortable in our routines of showing up in the pews of the church and yet don't care for justice. It reflects a poor understanding of our God and of the gospel. Now, I, I do just want to pause briefly to note that I do think justice is a little bit of a buzzword these days. I think in our culture, there are are almost anything can become a justice issue. And it's one of these buzzwords that if anyone says, oh, well, this is a justice issue, it suddenly sort of begs, begs attention for my cause. And so we do need to think about justice carefully. And I think... This is why it's so important for us to study God's word and to understand the importance of justice in the gospel and of scripture's description of God's justice so that we'll be anchored in our pursuit for what God cares about and not just anything that happens to have the label justice today uh, because the label is quite broad. So here is God's heart. God loves justice, righteousness, and protection for the weak. Finally, very briefly, I want to just note these last verses. What God is going to do. What is God, who loves justice, going to do? If this psalm just ended with the indictment of earthly judges, that would be good. Evil is condemned. But this psalm ends far better than that. Because this psalm ends with verse 8, a call to God to bring true justice. It says, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nation's. Just as God stands in judgment over Israel's wicked judges, he is going to stand in judgment over the whole earth. All the nations are his inheritance. It's his right. It's his privilege to judge. And since we have seen God's passion for righteousness and his care for the afflicted and the needy, God's people can read this call with confidence that justice will prevail. But what this psalm doesn't exactly spell out is the fact that God is going to delegate this ultimate judgment to his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, when he comes again, is the one to whom all authority has been given. Jesus is the one who is going to stand up and judge all people. He is the one who is going to receive the nations. The psalm says that the father is going to give the nations as an inheritance to his son, and he will have the right to judge every creature And so it's with great joy and hope that we read the prophecy in Isaiah 42 where God says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth. That's what God was sending his servant to do. That's what Jesus arrived to do, to bring justice. And yet, while he brings justice, he does it in such a way to rescue the weak and the needy and to deliver those who needed a savior. This is such a beautiful promise for Israel. Think about Israel so often oppressed, taken captive, afflicted. And here God promises a servant who will establish justice on the earth. God in Christ has done this for all people. Well, as we leave this courtroom scene and the indictment that God gives, I want to just encourage us to have a few things on our mind. For those who may not yet know Christ, for those who are wavering or wondering whether Christianity is really worth considering, I urge you to heed the call of this psalm. God will arise and judge the earth with perfect justice. The courtroom will be assembled. The judge will take his place on the bench and issue his judgment. And so the question is, how will you stand? How will you stand before the perfect, holy justice of God? The only hope is that you stand in Jesus Christ who took that justice on our behalf. And for those of us who are in Christ, for those of us who are in our Savior, this is such a psalm for joy, such a psalm for joy as we hear Christ arising to bring justice on the earth. And that justice looks like a Savior who took an interest and had a passion to rescue the afflicted and the needy and the captives. It is the hopeful joy of having a Savior who has come and gotten us so that we are with him, so that now justice means we will be acquitted by God because he has taken the punishment before us. And so my call, my hope is that we will rest in this joy and this hope this week as we cultivate a love for the weak and the vulnerable and meditate on the importance of understanding and emulating God's justice to image him on the earth. Let's pray. God, I pray that this picture of your character, that this picture of who you are, would give us would give us a, a picture to, to emulate, a vision to strive after, that we would have our hearts stirred that if this is what our God loves, that we would love this as well, and that we would seek to do it faithfully on behalf of your people. And I pray that we would leave this psalm so thankful. So thankful that a God who is passionate for justice poured out the just wrath against sin on a Savior Jesus Christ so that we might receive an innocent declaration and might live with you forever. I pray that these truths would be on our minds and our hearts this week. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.